173rd episode that was hard to say of the not your mama's gamer podcast a podcast where we talk about games and gaming from a feminist perspective my name is samantha blackman and i am an associate professor here at purdue university in west lafayette indiana where i talk about read about write about dream about amongst other things video games video games and video games so we are joined uh, by Megan Condis. Uh, hi, Megan. How are you? Hi. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, and Alicia Carabinas. How are you, Alicia? Um, I am great also, but uh, maybe not as great because I didn't just write a really fantastic book. <laughs> well, that would, you know, be up to you to do. <laughs> oh, okay. I'll just get right on that. <laughs> All right, so, well, Alicia's already kind of spilled the beans. Uh, So we're here tonight with Megan, um, who's an assistant professor of English uh, at Stephen F. Austin University. um, And she's also the coordinator for the tech writing minor. So, um, and the book that she's written that she's here to talk to us about tonight is Gaming Masculinity, Trolls, Fake Geeks, and the Gendered Battle for Online Culture. So if you've been listening to the last couple of shows, uh, you already know that this is the book that I've been hinting about uh, when we've been doing the what you're reading. And people are like, what are you reading? And I was like, I'm reading this book about that's mm-hmm. about ma- uh, masculinity and games culture. I was like, you know, and people are like uh, asking like after the show, like when they see me like online, what's the name of this book you're reading? I'm like, I'm not telling just yet. Um, (laughs) So uh, this is the book that I've been hinting at. um, And it's the book we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, But before we get to that, um, Alicia Carabinas, what would you like? Who are you? It's like, who are you? Uh, Hello. I am, this is only like the second time I get to say it, I think, on the podcast, a doctoral candidate at Purdue University uh, (laughs) studying rhetoric and composition, which is really just how I justify video games. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep. As we do. Yeah, they haven't given us like an official major yet, so we kind of sneak it in wherever they'll let us, right? Oh, yes, that. (laughs) That is what I'm working on for my dissertation. Oh, yes, this is true. Yeah, <laughs> so we do, we, we, we squeeze in whatever we can, right? It's like, oh, yeah, I'm in, re-, like, people never understand. I'm in an English department. Like, why are you in an English department talking about video games? Because video games. <laughs> I mean, I could be in communications or in any one of 16 other disciplines doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Kind of silly. Absolutely. All right, so <clears throat> um, before we get started, we got to do our usual 
what you're playing, what you're reading, what you're drinking. Because those are all important things. And we're going to pretend we have manners and we're going to start with Megan and say, Megan, uh, what are you playing lately? Anything good? Uh, so I'm always playing League of Legends because I'm a glutton for punishment and I've been playing it for so long I can't not be playing it. But I also am playing a lot of visual novel games. So uh, like right now, I'm working through Christine Love's library, uh, starting with Analog Hate Story, and then the sequel Hate Plus. Nice. Uh, Alicia? Uh, what well, about you? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I'll do two other things before I talk about the big one. Uh, so I bought, my, my husband just finished his degree, hooray, um, and I bought him a board game for his graduation gift and I got him Isle of Sky. Uh, Amazon had, you know, the big board game sale and we played a couple of games and he usually beats me so hard in board games. He is unreasonably lucky with anything. He always draws exactly what he needs. He rolls exactly the number he needs on the die. It's terrible. But I won all the games of Isle of Sky that we played. So I'm never playing any other board game ever again. That's it. I'm done. This is my game. Ah. <laughs> uh, and then as soon as classes were over, I went back to my Fallout 4 game, and that was nice to just kind of sink back into that. But then I got my preview copy of State of Decay 2, so that's where I live now. Ah. Oh, yes. Yes. I I understand that. Yes. Because I, mean, <laughs> I too live how, there. Yes. Obsessively, <laughs> I played the first one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I did not sleep much yesterday. I'll just say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, I, I can understand exactly where you are. Um, I'm going to say what I've been playing. Um, I actually spent some time playing the uh, the Stardew Valley PC multiplayer beta, um, which is uh, a whole lot of fun. And I actually can't wait for it to hit consoles. Uh, because almost everybody I know actually plays the game on console. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, all the people that I want to play with and like set up homesteads with and all fun stuff are playing on console. So I need I need the console version to hurry up and come. The PC. Um, That's one of the few games sorry, I just I cannot even ma imagine playing on console. I don't want to play that on console. I don't want to play Don't Starve on console. I don't know. Usually I, I prefer to play everything on console, but y'all all have fun. Have a good time. No, I enjoy it on console um, because I've got so many hours. Well, I've got so many hours in that game period. I've <laughs> yes, got on every system on every system. I've played it on PC. Uh, I played it on Mac. I played it on Xbox. I played it on switch. <laughs> I played it on everything except PS4 and my microwave oven. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I have in total over 300 hours in Stardew Valley. Uh, and it's kind of ridiculous. And with the multiplayer, I can seriously see, uh, see doing it again because there are certain things in Stardew that I cannot do. Alicia knows this. Everybody who's listened to the podcast and heard me talk you about Stardew fish. before. I cannot fish to save my life in Stardew Valley. I mean, 
on on the switch it's a little bit better for some reason i guess the controls are a little different so i can catch a fish every now and then but like on pc i can never catch a fish on xbox i can catch a fish like one in 100 times i cast i cast a rod um but so 299 hours was fishing is what you're saying <laughs> exactly and and i have like three fish uh <laughs> but so but with the with the multiplayer um if people come in and fish for me and then give me the fish then i can finish my community center and otherwise i will never be able to finish the community center so i'm really looking forward to the multiplayer <laughs> you just want multiplayer for people to play your damn game for you look at you yes i'm not ashamed <laughs> You should be for shame. I'm not saying. This, this is good practice, though, for when we start the commune, right? Exactly. Right, exactly. This, this, is, this is how we work together as a community, Alicia. This yes. is how we do this. For the, we're, we're preparing <laughs> for the zombie apocalypse. We're going to talk more about that in a second. Um, and then I was playing a little indie game by Illogica. It's a, by the dev house Illogica, uh, Subarea, Subarea, which is a p- top-down puzzle game uh, that's like physics-based. It's really fun. Um, it's hard. It's brutal because it's got like permadeath. Um, <laughs> so, and you know how I am about games with put with permadeath. I can I can get ragey real quick. Um, but I wrote about it this, no, not this week, today's Monday. I wrote about it last week. Um, but I've been, I had some fun playing that until, you know, I died too many times and then I'm like, I'm never going to play this game again until I play Mm -hmm. it again, until I play it again. Um, (laughs) and then the other game that I have been playing almost nonstop (laughs) since what, Friday? Or was it third? What day was that? Thursday or Friday that we got preview copies of State of Decay 2. I've been playing that game almost nonstop. Nonstop. Um, I'm really having a blast. Um, This is not a summative review, but just my impressions. Um, I'm having a blast playing this game. Um, I know uh, for me, the UI just is so much more intuitive um, than the than the old game. I'm going to disagree with you on that, but it's possibly only because I have like a thousand hours in the first one and the muscles remember, and this game is wrong because it changed <laughs> some things. But there are some things I do like better. There are some things I absolutely do not like and hope they change. It makes me want an elite controller more than anything I've ever wanted in my life. Yeah, yeah. So the funny part about it is, is that, um, I think, I think for me, the UI, I, I didn't have as many, I didn't have a thousand hours in the last game. I had a lot of hours in the last game, not a thousand hours. Um, but I think that what has happened for me in the interim is that I've played a lot of games like this. Um, and the UI is more like more modern games than the last the UI in yeah. the original version. And I think that that's why it feels more intuitive. Now, the only thing that makes me ragey every single time is the run mechanic. Cause I keep clicking my left stick to run 
and it's not left stick to run. So I have an elite controller and I am going to remap all my buttons to make it operate exactly the way I want it to. Um, and then I'm going to, uh, I am going to end the zombie apocalypse all on my own. Um, <laughs> that being said, I, uh, I streamed this game earlier today with, uh, Jen from Girl Tribe Gaming. Um, and uh, the funny part is um, she said at the beginning, she was like, yeah, I mapped my uh, fast search and my run onto the paddles on the back of my controller. And I was like, oh God, no, I would never put fast search on the back of my, on the back of my controller. Cause I, cause I was like, I could see me like fumbling around with my controller and hitting it by mistake. And of course she, she hit it by, she, well, she said it was a mistake <laughs> uh, several times while we were playing and brought, and brought all the, all the wrath of the zombie hell down on our heads. Uh, so that was pretty interesting, but I'm, I am loving this game so far. Um, just, you know, my own experience is, has been a good one so far. Um, and I'm not going to sit here and gush. <laughs> about State of K2, because I'll do that next time. Yes. All right. So that's what we're playing. Um, we get a little obsessive. I know, we do. We do. Um, what you reading? Megan, you reading anything good? Yeah, so I am reading This Book is a Dungeon, which is a paired, it's a game development journal that, and forgive me, Nathan, if you're listening, Nathan Munier, um, that's a guess, M-E-U-N-I-E-R. Yeah, I think it's Munier. I don't know. Okay, Munier. Um, I'm just going to say Nate, because I'm going to pretend like we're close <laughs> friends. So, so Nate uh, wrote a game developer's journal about the process of creating this amazing, dark, gothic dungeon twine game and then has the game itself as a package part of the deal so that you can kind of play through and then see his process in developing as he goes through and right now I'm experimenting with twine a little bit and so reading through it is uh it's both inspiring and also intimidating because his game is so fantastic and you know it's like oh okay I, I get some ideas about how I could do things but also um wow, he can get Twine to do so many awesome things and it's a little bit uh, intimidating, but hopefully it will hopefully it will be a, a good tool. But also if you're interested in uh, Twine or in game development or in like interactive narrative, it's just a really fun read slash play. Cool. Uh, what about you, Alicia? You reading anything good, Donna? Well, I was reading this really great book that I guess we're going to talk about, uh, so uh, we don't have to talk about that just yet. But I've also, I went to the library for one book for my dissertation and research, and I came home with seven books for my dissertation and research, which I guess is hashtag dissertation. But uh, I'm reading this, uh, I don't know, it's a little older, I guess it's about a decade old book called Affective and Emotional Aspects of Human-Computer Interaction. Um, and it's an anthology. I've been trying to read a little outside of, of the normal stuff that I run into just because I'm curious about how 
what we think of as different disciplines approach talking about games. Mm -hmm. um, so I've been reading um, these uh, chapters. Uh, in, you know, the, I just finished a huge project that involved processing a lot of data. So now I'm reading all of this data and these statistics, and I'm like, oh, this all makes so much more sense to me now. <laughs> it's really nice <laughs> to know what I'm doing. But um, I'm, I'm just still, I'm surprised at how... Games research is still games research, regardless of who's doing it. There's some differences, of course, and certainly some of the conclusions are different, right? Mm -hmm. Or how, say, your sample is drawn and how you think of that sample. But the similarities are astonishing as well. Okay, well, I'm reading um, a couple of things. Uh, I, I'm still reading uh, Children of Blood and Bone. Oh, yeah, uh, I want to start that. Have you read that yet, Alicia? Or you know, I have it not on your been list? reading anything. It's on my list. I haven't been reading anything for fun lately. Yeah, I, uh, it's going to be, you're going to enjoy it. You're going to love this book. Um, I, cause I, you and I have sometimes dissimilar taste in, uh, in fiction. Uh, but I think you'll really <laughs> enjoy this one. Ready player one. Um, <laughs> I never said Ready Player One was like great literature. That is a lie. I'm gonna go back and get the podcast, but go on. You gonna have to. <laughs> but um, Children of Blood and Bone uh, is an amazing, uh, is an amazing novel. It's a it's it's a YA novel, but it's a it's a meaty novel. Um, I've got the hardcover, and it's over 500 pages. Um, oh, wow. And with things being so busy lately between, you know, uh, you know, finishing up the semester and getting ready for like CNW and getting ready for my, you know, online class to start. I haven't had a whole lot of time to read fiction. Um, but, uh, I'm really looking forward to having some time, uh, to settle in and just like voraciously read like 300 pages of it. Um, <laughs> that's, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to do. Um, and then, yeah, I've been reading this other little book. That's uh pretty interesting. Um, I've talked about it on the podcast before, uh, but it's called gaming masculinity. Um, <laughs> and, and we'll talk about that more in a little bit, uh, because I've really been enjoying that one, uh, as well. And that's been my, uh, that's been my non, that's been my nonfiction read, uh, that's been my nonfiction read lately. So we'll talk more about that in just a little bit. But before we do that, we got to do the most important thing on the podcast, which is the what you're drinking. Uh, <laughs> that's not the most important thing on the podcast. I'm kidding. Uh, Megan, what about you? What you drinking? Uh, I'm drinking Moscow Mules. Ooh. It's, it's Texas, mm -hmm. so it's hot. And the ginger beer is very refreshing. And the mint is very refreshing. So nice. That's what that's my go-to right now. Okay, so I'm gonna jump in right now, Alicia, and then we'll come back to you in a second because right. I am really similar to you right now. I am mm -hmm. drinking a fever tree gin, uh, light ginger beer, uh, the uh, with Jack Daniels uh, because it's delicious. Um, and I like the fever tree. We talked about this before in the podcast. The fever tree light is not. Like it doesn't have artificial sweetener. It just has less sugar. Um, and because it's so super gingery that it still tastes sweet, um, mm -hmm. you know, and it's really good. I, I happened upon the fever tree when I was, 
actually I was in Texas when I happened upon the fever tree, uh, ginger beer. Um, and I really liked it. And I came back and I was like, I got to find this ginger beer here in town. Um, and I've been drinking it almost nonstop. So <laughs> yes. Um, and that's what I'm drinking. What about you, Alicia? What you drinking, darling? Uh, also because of the weather, I am drinking a gin and tonic. Uh, because that is my new summertime drink if I'm not with Sam when she gives me lemonade based things ooh I hate gin well I am on the <laughs> I'm sorry I'm sorry for you and your loss but I like the uh, the limey hint uh, in a gin and tonic and I find it very refreshing you don't have to drink it so I guess it doesn't matter <laughs> <laughs> You're very mature. Fight, <laughs> I fight, am. Fight, 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 My fight. dissertation advisor, everyone. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I know. I get. I get. I get less mature as I grow older. Because tomorrow's my birthday. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, happy birthday! I remember five years ago when somebody told me to just hold the baby in a little bit longer so that I did. y'all would share a birthday. <laughs> I did. I was like, crush legs. Don't have I that baby yet. <laughs> did not. I did not follow those instructions. You so they did not share a birthday. I know. Um, but I hope that your birthday is as happy as hers was. Oh, thank you. She got I a lot of Play-Doh. I don't know if you're into that, but. <laughs> no, I'm I'm not exactly into the Play-Doh. I'm not exactly into the Play-Doh, but I am going to um appear I don't know what I'm getting for my birthday. My kid has presents actually wrapped for me. Oh. Um that I'm not I haven't been allowed to look at. So, I don't know what I'm getting for my birthday, but I got presents and we're going to get up they, these are all the things she has planned. Um, we'll see how the, well this works in the morning. Um, we have to get up early in the morning and we have to, uh, go to breakfast. Um, we have to get pancakes because pancakes, uh, all, all of these are her favorite things. Uh, <laughs> but oddly they're for my birthday. Uh, so we're going to, we're going to breakfast. We're going to have pancakes. Um, I have to open my presents first thing. Um, and then there will be cake because there always has to be cake on your birthday it is a must according to a small person who lives in my house um so tomorrow i'm gonna get a good case of the sugar diabetes from having pancakes and cake and god knows what else all in one day um according according to a small one um so i'm i'm actually i'm looking forward to it um uh I don't usually care much about birthdays, but you know what? Like I said before, I'm living my best life. I'm more than happy to have another birthday. Uh, so, hey. But anyway, we talked about, and I'll probably have more ginger beer and Jack Daniels with dinner tomorrow. I'll just hide it in a sippy cup so my kid doesn't know I'm like slurping on whiskey at dinner. Because, uh, <laughs> you know. All right, so that brings us back uh, to the topic of of your book, Megan. Uh, the book is Gaming Masculinity, Trolls, Fake Geeks, and the Gendered Battle for Online Culture. Hashtag um, gaming. Hashtag, hashtag gaming. Um, 
Alicia, Alicia was like, I, I, I want to talk. I can't wait to talk about this book, but she wouldn't tell me what she wanted to talk about. So, um, I'm going to ask a question or two first and then I'll let Alicia have her turn because she's really anxious. Um, so Megan, can you tell us how this topic for you came about? Yeah. So video games have always been a big part of my life. My uh, dad, when I was growing up was the manager of the local pizza joint. And so they had arcade machines (laughs) there. Uh, You know, he got us a Nintendo. And I remember uh, like watching him play the original Super Mario Brothers and then trying to emulate him and and failing and, and, you know, graduating from system to system. So they've always been a part of my life. And I've always identified as a, uh, I'll I'll use your formulation, as a hashtag gamer. (laughs) Um, And... When I was in like junior high, high school, part of that identification was 100% rejecting anything feminine about myself because Mm -hmm. the circles that I was running in were, I was the only female in the circles uh, and I wanted to fit in and I wanted to prove that girls could be gamers too. But the only way that I understood how to do that was to kind of reject the girlishness about myself. Like, so basically, you know, I was trying to be that like exceptional girl, right? Like I'm not like those other girls who like makeup and, you know, Uh know what was popular back then, sex in the city or whatever. Like I'm into cool stuff and I'm like one of the guys. And that was a big part of my identity. Yeah. And then, uh, getting into undergraduate, uh, college and being an English major, Uh, being exposed to feminism and feminist theory for the first time, I realized, you know, actually (laughs) you're not, you're not proving that girls can do games too. If you are trying to de-girlify yourself the entire time that you're occupying this space. And I realized that, uh, and you know, I got to maybe give a shout out to some of my, my teachers. So uh, like I worked under Lisa Nakamura and Stephanie foot and, Uh, They taught me a lot about queer theory and thinking about gender roles. And it made me realize, you know, even though my body is a woman's body, whenever I was entering into these gaming spaces, I was essentially turning myself into a guy. And and that was especially true online. Like in face-to-face spaces, you can, you know, like wear the baggy clothes and cut the hair short and and all that stuff but online you can totally mask your your body and instead just kind of perform a masculinity through the way that you speak and the way that you act and once i realized that you know uh, that was a thing that i could study and write about uh basically i guess you could say this this book is kind of like me explaining my young self to my older self um like this is the the factors that contributed to you making these decisions about how you were presenting yourself and they were they were logical decisions but because well they were logical decisions because they were me understanding the kind of social space I was in and acting in the way that would get me you know make me popular within those social spaces or as popular as one can be that sounded weird. I'm not saying like I was popular when I was in high school. I guess I just mean, 
like I was doing the things that I needed to do to, to get along, but I always had this feeling of being uncomfortable. And I think writing this book kind of helped me to make peace with that part of my past by kind of figuring out why the space is structured in the way that it is. And it also gave me the chance to discover a lot of people who are kind of pushing back against that and creating feminine spaces and queer spaces and safe spaces online for people so that hopefully, so this is like the, the happy utopian ending, hopefully, you know, young people when they are growing up today won't have to feel like they have to change who they are in order to be a part of this community. Yeah. Uh, yep. Can I ask a follow-up on that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, no, it was just, it was something that I was thinking about earlier um, as I was kind of organizing my questions. Uh, so this is something you talk about a lot, you know, in the introduction of the book is this, the, the utopian idea of the past that, that cyberspace and the online world was going to be a place for us to leave our bodies behind and, and just be, you know, who we are really inside. But mm -hmm. it seems like the, the reality of that was you can leave your body behind and be who you are on the inside as long as who you are on the inside is basically like a white dude. Um, right. You know, hetero, cisgendered, white dude of the internet. Uh, right. And so it, it turns out, I guess, that, that that utopia was really just about erasing everyone else and i was wondering just as a as a point of of i don't know speculation what do you think birthed that is it is it just is it just white male supremacy patriarchy or was it because so many of those people were involved in like creating these spaces that they felt a particular ownership is it both is it something else i'm just curious what you think yeah, um, I think a big part of it is that, you know, the people who were populating this space uh, of, like, the internet, I guess, in the, like, mid-80s were mostly uh, people who were in universities, uh, so they were well-educated, middle-class, mostly white, mostly male, and so I don't think that they intentionally set up the space to make it of straight white male space. In fact, I really do think that they thought they were setting up a utopia. But I think when the only people in the room look like you and have the same kinds of experiences that you have, it's really easy to kind of ex just expect that your experience is the kind of de facto normal experience. And so the version of utopia that I think got kind of baked into the internet in its early days was the colorblind version of the internet and, and gender blind and everything blind, I guess, body blind. So that the idea was, you know, we're going to value a certain kind of affectation, like a certain kind of personality. And we think of that personality as being unmarked uh, because we are white and straight and male and society doesn't point those things out to us all the time. It just kind of accept us, accepts us as the norm. So when people started going online and talking about 
their gender or their sexuality or their race. Um, it oh, why like do you have to make disruption. everything about race? Why do you right, have to make right. everything about gender? Right. Like, uh, you know, oh, well, we you shouldn't have to think about that here because we're all none of us are bigoted and we're all nice and we don't want to discriminate. It's like, well, OK, except if this entire topic, like this entire part of my lived experience is not OK to talk about, then you you haven't created a utopian space. Like, I think the word you used was perfect. Like, you've just erased difference. And it reminds mm-hmm. me a lot because you mentioned Ready Player One earlier. So it reminds mm-hmm. me a lot. Is it okay if I spoil Ready Player One? Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's the worst. So if you have, you know. Yeah. Don't, don't read it. It's fine. You're little. Um, but in that, uh, I haven't seen the movie yet, but in the book, at least, uh, there's a character named H who is the best friend of the protagonist. And H is presenting online as a straight white guy. And then towards the end of the book, the protagonist realizes, oh, um, his friend all along was a black lesbian woman. And he is like betrayed, like he's angry about the fact that she had hidden her identity from him. And he's like, you know, how could you? And she explains, well, no one would have taken me seriously as a gamer because they all expect pro gamers to be straight white dudes. So I give them what they expect. And then rather than kind of saying, oh, well, that makes me really think about the shittiness in our culture, uh, the protagonist of the book just goes, well, I'm just going to go ahead and keep thinking of you as a straight white dude, since that's how I've always thought of you. And I'm just yeah. going to go back to using male pronouns for you and just kind of pretend like this reveal never happened. Because I like, just I, get I, to make the world the way I want it to be. That's yeah. And, and he even says, like, well, it's not important because I only care about like your mind and your personality. And it's interesting because it's like, well, it's not important to you, Wade, the protagonist of the novel, (laughs) but it's obviously very important to her because she's organized her entire online life around this masquerade. So yeah, I think, I think that that's the one thing, and I don't know if it was intentional or not, but that's the one thing Ernest Klein got really right in Ready Player One was that, that idea of, You know, the being stuck between the bind of well, you're not supposed to talk about it because it's not important. But if you do talk about it, then you're bringing up all of these issues that you're betraying the utopic space that isn't actually utopic. Right. Right. Mm. It's a trap. (laughs) Insert Admiral Akbar meme. It's a trap. I can't do the voice. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, man. It's so much I hate about Ready Player One. Oh, so, God. And, and the I, Ready Player One podcast. We're here to talk about how much we hate it. <laughs> how much we hate it. Uh, so, and, and Alicia teases me because I always say, I'm like, it's a good book. And she's like, no, it's not a good book. I'm like, no, it's a good book for what it's I use it for. Book. It's a trash fire. It is. But it's a good book for what I use it for. Because I use it as an opportunity to talk about how gaming identity the i excuse me the identity of a gamer gets constructed um in this book but then also this this the way that it it calls back on to or harkens back to a world of the 1980s right and in this 
repetitive and almost reductive way. I mean, because it harkens back to the 1980s in a very specific way that, that should speak to me as, as a person, as a human, as a gamer, because I would have been, you know, a teenager during the time, uh, the period of time that they're talking about specifically, um, in the book when they're hearkening back to this, this period of nostalgia. Um, and it's interesting or more interesting to me because, um, when we're talking about, you know, the way that it's being construed as this, this space of white maleness, um, it feels real <laughs> to me as a black woman, mm-hmm. right? Uh, because w- black women, black folks, women in general, often felt felt that kind of ostracization, ostracization. Gosh, that's the whiskey. Um, <laughs> that that the game kind of that the game that the book kind of pushes forward um, in the way that it's written itself. Um, so no, I completely get it. And Alicia always teases me because I'm like, I don't say the book is great literature, literature, right? In that way. I don't yeah. say that the the book is great literature. I just say that the book does a suge- successful job of doing what I wanted to do. Um, and that is to prove that, you know, gaming culture in the 1980s was a trash fire. Um, I won't say that it's not a trash fire now, but definitely <laughs> in the in the 1980s, right? Because, I mean, I started gaming in the 1970s, right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, my my first my first video game, and I use that in scare quotes, as my kid says, bunny ears, right? My first video game was one of the held, handheld um, football games in like 1976, Right. Um, so one, you're talking about a girl playing video games Two, you're talking about a girl playing sports games. I mean, and we had no choice because, you know, those handhelds, you had football, baseball and hockey. <laughs> those were your choices. And I had two cousins um, and all three of us, each of us had one of the sports. So we just passed them around amongst the three of us. Um, so, you know, we were, we were limited in what we could and couldn't play in 1976. Um, yeah. And, you know, and to be a girl, right. Playing the sports games and the sports video games at that was like, what, what, what are you doing? Why, why are you not playing with dolls? Cause you're seven and that's what you're supposed to be playing with. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hear some sarcasm. Alicia. No, I'm just I I feel like this this is the podcast where I'm just going mm-hmm myself to death. <laughs> just all night long. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I get you. I get you. All right. Um go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say it's funny because the first time I read Ready Player One I think I read it in like two days and it was just kind of like a, you know, goofy, um, summer, you know, popcorn book. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that was really fun. Like, I remember 
uh, I don't know, Pac-Man. And in the book was like, you're smart if you remember Pac-Man. And so I felt smart, like, you know, getting all the references <laughs> and all that stuff. Uh, and it, was, it wasn't for like a couple weeks that it kind of set in. And I was like, wait a minute. You know, I was identifying with the protagonist because, you know, he was talking about all of these games and movies and books that I liked. And, and I, so I was like, yeah, I, I, I'm putting myself in this person's shoes. But about two weeks after I finished the book, I was like, oh, I, I don't think I was supposed to be identifying with him in that way. I mean, I think, you know, you're, you're supposed to identify with the protagonist, but the way that the book treats not just the best friend character, H, but also um, the love interest character. Look, all like, right. It was, it was weird um, kind of realizing like, oh, I think maybe I was supposed to identify with, with her and, and with being like the support character who's there to just facilitate Wade's success instead of the, the protagonist. <laughs> What women is tools? <laughs> no, shocking. Um, look, here here is my definitive statement on Ready Player One. Um, we could. I'm happy to talk about this all night long if y'all want to. But here here is is the root of the problem for me with this book, and it extends through all these other issues that we're talking about, and it gets back to the very thing that you said, Megan, earlier about when there's nobody else in the room, you think your experience is typical, right? It's the baseline. Mm-hmm. Um. So if we think about the the setting, the very setting, and I'm not only mean the oasis, I mean like the real world of Ready Player One, this abject poverty in a land of, ravaged by climate change and overpopulation, when it when Wade actually describes like his surroundings, there's a lot of people who live that way like now, and I don't mean like mm-hmm. third world people, I mean like in America, there are people who live like that right now. That's not a dystopia. That's a white man climbing out of a situation that people live every day on the backs of others and also using his video game knowledge. And I find that, and I'm going to, I'm not going to pull punches here because I hate this book. I find it disgusting and <laughs> I hate the book. I hate the book a lot. Uh, and I think it comes back to this idea of just not simply having exposure to the way people who are not like you navigate the world and how they are forced to navigate the world because they're not like you. And I mean, I think it's shameful. I think Ernest Klein should be ashamed. I think people who adapted the book should be ashamed, but I realize that mine is not a popular opinion and people like to make money. So, you know, y'all get yours. Um, <laughs> but I, I have a lot of feelings about this novel. Plus I had a lot of gin now, so I'm, I'm free to talk about them. <laughs> Feelings are coming out. Feelings are coming out. You know know what? I understand. I understand. I mean, it it makes sense. Um, I mean, but at the same time, I, I, I use the book as a tool for critique. And I think that some books are ripe for that, especially when you have a book that is as, as popular as ready player one. I think that's, that's more than fair. And, but I think that also you're probably just really grateful that I never happened to be in one of those classes. You probably purposely took that shit off the <laughs> syllabus when I was in your classes because you know, you know, we're like, we can't have a class. Alicia's just going to yell the whole time. Like just 50 minutes of yelling. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Sorry. I'm the worst student. 
You were. That's okay. That all the time. I have more questions, though, about a good book, which is <laughs> Megan's book. Okay, go ahead. All right. So, oh, I, I don't know. I don't know where to start. I have so many questions. Um, speaking of something, I think, that is along these lines, right? In the mm-hmm. very beginning. And you do this a couple of times throughout. And I think it's a very important move and a necessary move in the way that you write. But at the very beginning, something stuck out to me. And I want to point it out and ask about it because of these issues that we're talking about. Um, in the first game break, when you're talking about Casey Tron. Mm-hmm. Uh, you say, uh, this is like page 12. Uh, For my part, the more I watched her interact, Casey Tron, with her fans in the stream, the more uncomfortable I became. And I stopped right there and I highlighted this section for a very specific reason. I wanted to ask you, when you you yourself appear at these moments in your book, um, it's usually something that I felt, I experienced, I, you know, something about how you navigate the situation. Mm-hmm. I find that more and more lately I am removing those things from my writing because those are the points that get attacked. And it makes me really sad that I'm doing that. And so I just wonder if you ever considered kind of taking yourself out of the equation here. I don't think that you should have. I don't I don't mean this as a critique. I just wonder yeah. if you if you had those same experiences that I'm feeling where like you know, I, I evaluate my work and I'm like, okay, so when they come for me, where are they gonna come? And I'm like building up those walls higher, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I was just wondering if you if you did any of that, or if you were just like, you know what? Here's what it is. So I'm going to talk about it. Yeah, I mean it's it's nerve wracking with this kind of subject. Uh, luckily, I haven't endured too much uh, like GamerGate nonsense. Um, although I am, I will be interested to see now that the book is out in the world if if that changes but luck with regards to kind of inserting myself into the story one of the things i really wanted to do with this book was not only have a conversation with other academics but also get game developers and game players into the conversation and so i thought it was really important for me to kind of show up as a person and as a person who plays games and watches streams and you know, is a part of this culture and not just kind of viewing it from afar. Right. And not just a demographic, but an embodied rounded individual. Yeah. And I mean, and that means, you know, maybe that means being vulnerable to people coming for you about your opinions, but you know, if they, if they come for me, at least they, are engaging with me in some way and i mean i don't know i'm saying that now having only ever had the occasional like shitty tweet so maybe i would sing a different tune if you know i experienced the kind of harassment that a lot of people have experienced in gaming culture but i don't know if i just thought if i'm going to ask non-academics to talk with me then i want to talk with them person to person and not kind of as an academic who's explaining to someone, well, here's what I see going on in your culture. Like I wanted to say, you know, no, I, I was watching this stream and it made me feel weird and I decided to write about it. And, you know, and that like, that's literally what happened in that chapter. And so instead of pretending like, Oh, well, you know, this is 
just something I selected for observation. It was it was like no, this this is just a, was part of my Wednesday that week or whatever it was, and <laughs> and you know it, it just stuck with me, and I thought it was interesting, and I wanted to talk yeah. about it. No, I mean I, I really like that, and I I, I kind of hate myself every time I find the urge to cut one of those sections, right? The, the, it's, it's always the, I feel moments. I felt this, I, I had this emotional experience in this moment. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think Sam, you'll, you'll know probably exactly why I think about your first cuphead piece and how there's Mm -hmm. one particular half of a paragraph that gets quoted and quoted and quoted and quoted and quoted in which Sam takes a moment to like establish her emotional reaction to the first footage of cuphead and mm-hmm. everything else in that piece gets ignored, like ignored, links yeah. to history, to culture, to embodiment, to experience. Everything else gets ignored in favor of this this one moment of I felt. And it makes me sad that I feel now is like a, a sco- an early career scholar that I am not allowed to feel as part of my work. And I'm just really I'm glad that you did. Um and that you felt a necessity for it. And I hope that, that I can kind of reclaim that for myself. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I also, so I kind of built myself a structure that would allow me to do that by talking about how feelings are something that gamer culture encourages us to repress. So like, mm-hmm. that's the whole yeah. dynamic with trolls is if trolls rile you up and get you to express an emotion then that means like they won the game they won yeah that's mm-hmm. the game and so since that is something that i'm writing about and pushing back against then kind of coming forward as a feeling person who all but who is not hysterical and who is not you know raging but it just has feelings and also makes arguments you know, I, I think that performing that is to go back to what we were talking about earlier. It's part of kind of reclaiming. No, it's okay to present as to be a human a and have feelings. Yeah, and and even like you know the the stereotype is that men are rational and women are emotional, and so I feel like it's it's okay to say like, yeah, I have emotions, and that doesn't invalidate my arguments. And it doesn't mean that I have to pretend to be uh, a dude, like a bro who, who doesn't have feelings in order to participate in the conversation. Yeah, that makes sense. So, um, and, and it's interesting because as a, as a gamer um, and as a woman um, and here we talk about to talk about embodiment right as a black queer woman right of all these other subject positions that i that i occupy um i feel for myself it is necessary for me to uh insert myself right into into my work into my research because it also feels like that is that moment of uh, that is that moment. That is that opportunity for me to show others like me, right. That they also have a place. Right. Um, And because that's that's feminist research. I'm sorry. No, and and, that's okay. No. And, and I think that that's 
something that I never had as a kid. And I think that because of that, because I never had that as a child, that's why I do it now, right? Uh, Because I have those conversations with my kid now. She's nine, right? And she goes, why didn't you grow up to be a game designer? Why didn't you grow up to do this? And I, and I, she doesn't understand when I said, I never knew that was something I could do. Mm-hmm. It, it, she's astounded by that. She was like, what do you mean? You never knew that was some, she's like, you knew what video games were. You knew people made them. Why didn't you know? And you know, so how do you explain to a nine year old, right? Who is thankfully right beyond yeah beyond uh understanding what i mean by i didn't know that was something i can do i didn't know that that was something that not only a um not only a female child but a female child of color could do mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um so i mean it, it, for me to to insert the personal feels like an obligation and that is, is not to say that it should be for everybody, but I think it feels like an obligation to me because I do occupy the subject positions that I do. If that, yeah. you know, makes sense. Yeah, it no, does. absolutely. And it's, it's interesting because I would wager to guess that a straight white male academic wouldn't think have to think about that wouldn't feel like it's either something that they need to avoid or something that they have an obligation to do they would just Mm -hmm. you know write whatever they felt like they wanted to do it they would do it if they didn't they wouldn't and yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) exactly have the most uplifting delightful conversations on this podcast we are just bastions of joy Oh, good times. All right, I don't want to ask all the questions, but I do have more questions, Sam. So I don't know, jump in or let me ask. No, go ahead and ask another one, and then I'll I'll jump in with another one. Okay, so this was your this was your dissertation project, right? Or part of? Yes and no. So I had a dissertation project, and then I was shopping it around to publishers, and then the 2016 presidential election happened, (laughs) and it was like, oh, uh, gotta scrap some stuff to make room for that. So I ended up uh, getting rid of about half of it and then uh, replacing it with, with stuff about the all right and Breitbart and Milo and all oh, that. Boy, I got some questions about that. Um, but <laughs> I, okay. So aside from that, that part, right. Mm-hmm. Cause I, I do want to talk about that when I talk about that specifically. So as someone who like, I just defended my prospectus last month, I'm very, awesome. thank you. I'm fresh in this process. So thinking of me and all of the other people who are like concerned about the horrors and and maybe joys of, of dissertating. Here's my Mm -hmm. question. Considering the, the personal nature of this project, but also the academic nature, what do you, what would you, what could you identify as some of the the, like most challenging aspects of doing this research? Hmm. I mean, I don't know if this has to do with with the personal nature of it, but I did find that diving into some of the discourse made me a little bit callous in some ways. Uh, Like, so even if you're critiquing 
racism and sexism in gaming culture. If you read enough, like, harassing tweets, calling people every name in the book, then mm-hmm. eventually you just develop scar tissue around it. Yep, that is and just the other day, I, I went and gave a talk uh, at another school over in Washington State, because um, actually they, <laughs> they're like freshmen... Uh, everybody reads the same thing book was ready player one if you can believe it and so I was invited oh, to talk about that yeah it was great but I so I was making my little powerpoint presentation and uh, I showed it to a friend of mine and was like well what do you think like do you like the design of the powerpoint and they were like yeah the design is great but um, some of the tweets that you screen kept to put in this are like horrendous and, and triggering and I have I realized... to remind myself specifically to put in trigger warnings Yes. Yes. And like, I just realized, oh, I've just been steeped in this so much that even though I'm critiquing it, it feels normal to me. Yes. Like, oh yeah, they they called her, uh, you know, I don't want to like use that language on your podcast, but like, you know, you, you just get used to seeing go back in the kitchen and make me a sandwich. So, and, and worse things that you're just like that background radiation level of racism and sexism. You're just like, yeah, that's the internet. And to me, I have to constantly fight myself on that to remind myself like, no, that's not just the internet. Like that's something that we all either allow to happen or push back against. And it's not just naturally occurring somewhere. Uh, So that, that was, I think one of my biggest problems was, trying to I don't want to say trying to keep myself from kind of sinking into it like quicksand I guess yeah yes Mm -hmm. oh no I totally oh I understand Mm -hmm. yeah I have a I have a template for the first slide now of every powerpoint that I make um, that touches on this stuff at all because I know I won't realize in the moment um, anymore that I should probably say, Hey, I, I need to offer a content warning before I talk about people inviting each other to kill themselves. Right. Right. Like, because it, it does become so normalized. I, you know, I've seen the same stuff over and over and over and over. I mean, we laugh about like some of the stuff we get in the email or on our YouTube comments. We, it's, it's funny at this point, you know, whatever. Um, because we're so we have so much scar tissue built up for mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. yeah like it's a it's an acronym like telling someone to commit suicide they'll just type kys kill yourself mm-hmm. and and it's like so normal that i'm like yeah i know what that means and it has no well i don't know i guess it's like i think it has no impact on me but but it really does you know it's like that that kind of constant low-level irritant of it and the fact that you know you can forget how horrible it is to say that to a stranger on the internet like that is that is damage that has been done to Mm -hmm. us and to people who face that all the time in the culture and you know frankly to the people who are saying it like they have been damaged by the way that this culture, like gamer culture, but just uh, American culture, our culture, like they have been damaged by it. And that is part of what allows them to participate in that kind of discourse. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, 
it's even more interesting specifically because we talk about trigger warnings. We talk about, I mean, even when, when we present at conferences, right? We always, always start with, okay, we're going to ask that you not do certain things, right? In addition to the trigger yep. warning, right? Don't, don't tweet this with hashtag Gamergate. Don't tweet this with hashtag, you know, with the, with this list of hashtags. I mean, mm-hmm. I, it's gotten to the point that that's like my initial slide on PowerPoint yep. presentations. Here are all right? the things you shouldn't do and also beware because I'm going to talk about horrifying things. Right. It's like, here's, here's what, you know, just move it from one PowerPoint presentation to one, to the next, right? Because yeah, and you all, you generally have, you generally have one person who's like, oh, well, I'm going to tweet this and then hashtag Gamergate. And then at the end, they're like, well, you know, I had like 47 messages within three minutes that were like KYS, right? Or, you know, what kind of like feminazi shit are you, are you listening to or blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, so what part of, you know, <laughs> one, don't, don't tweet this with hashtag Gamergate, didn't you understand? But, but you know, two, so here's a, here's the best way for me to demonstrate to you exactly what I'm talking about, right? In this presentation, but I don't want anyone to have to go through that in order to have an understanding of it. But then at, right. the, at the same time, it's like, you know, it, it's, it's almost as if they don't believe, Right. Um, yeah. It's, it's no, like, well, they, this clearly cannot be as bad as, you know, as she says, she says this is right. Or, um, and, and, um, and recently, and, and the, the, the person that I was working with was, was really understanding is that I was putting together a conference presentation and, um, one of the people, you know, uh, put Gamergate in the title. Um, mm-hmm. and I was like, okay, I said, I'm sorry, but I went in and I, um, I took that out and I, and I inserted it in a different way. I was like, because that's going to be publicly accessible and publicly searchable. Um, yes. and, and I was like, and that's going to bring heat. Right. And, and I, that's heat that I don't one don't want to bring unnecessarily one, because I, and I told this to people all the time, one, because I don't want to bring heat unnecessarily to myself, but two, I have a child. Mm-hmm. Um, and, that's also heat that I don't want to bring to my house. Uh, Can I just say too, so I'm going to call myself out, I guess. So I'm a white woman and I think a lot of times that kind of thing, I think of it as like a white feminism occurrence where, you know, I'll have people who will say, you know, Oh, I want to like help you publicize your talk. And so I'm going to tweet about, what it is that you're talking about and i'm going to use the hashtag and then they get they get inundated in those ways and they're so surprised and it's i don't know it's i think it's something like the way that the media covered gamergate and the way that they really focused in on the experiences of white women and and these white women facing like horrible harassment and it was horrible but i also get the sense that you know, this is something that women of color experience online all the time and so it you know it's maybe not as surprising when you see a harassment campaign coming down and it it seems like a lot of times it is white feminist women who like understand the concept of online harassment in the sense of like someone's rude to me online but but maybe hasn't experienced that like Mm. pile on where Mm -hmm. you know someone targets up you and and six their 
hundred thousand followers to to bother you all day and all night. Right. Um, or or when that when that when that crosses a barrier into physical space, right? Mm-hmm. And they don't understand that what that for people of color, that crossing over into the physical space takes on a whole nother level of danger, right? right? Because yeah, when you're talking about, you know, things like swattings, when you're talking about interactions with the police, there's a whole nother level of inter there's a whole nother level of danger when you're talking about sending the police to a white woman's house and sending the police to a black woman's house. Uh-huh. Right? Uh-huh. Um, and, and, you know, having folks have that understanding there, you know, have that folks have that understanding, um, it is it, difficult, right? Especially when, when folks don't understand, um, you know, how people can say, uh, things like, you know, in many cases, calling the police on black folks for frivolous shit is attempted murder. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just all over the place. Right. Um, so, you know, it's, it's it, to talk about intersectionality um, is something that we have to do and have to get people to understand. And that's, you know, that's something hashtag white feminism doesn't do well. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's well, is un, one understand. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and call myself out because I don't like, I don't think I did it particularly well in this book. I mean, I know I, the title talks about, you know, it's the gendered battle for online culture, and I focus on gender and sexuality. But uh, right now, I'm doing some research into the way that the alt-right and white supremacists are recruiting in gamer culture. And it just made me realize, like, you know, occasionally race will come up in my book, but I really wish I had, you know, dedicated an entire chapter to it or or spent some more time on it. Because I think a lot of times, you you know, if you just look in the popular press about, you know, articles about gamer culture, it's all about, you know, women are getting harassed and all the images are of white women getting harassed. And I think the the racial dimension gets ignored a lot of times because we want to have this story of like, you know, mean geeky guys who live in their basement are being uh, shitty to like pretty cis white straight skinny women and you know we feel bad for them and then you know a lot of the experiences of different types of people people who are also getting harassed by gamergate but they their stories aren't being told because they're not fitting into that particular narrative mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> it shit is fraught <laughs> just say that to say the very least to say the very least and I think part of that that uh, the guilt of white feminism the uh, I don't know we white women hello dear white women my fellow white women we need to learn to say okay when somebody calls us out that is the first thing that we need to do, all of us, is to just say, okay. And to actually go back and look at what you did and why somebody might call you out on it. Because we get so defensive and we cannot be what we need to be if our first response is to be like, uh-uh. Or, but I was just trying to help. Mm-hmm, I just mm-hmm. wanted to boost you. 
Mm-hmm. I didn't realize. Or just to cry, yeah, but... we have. Yeah, or to cry. Oh God, we we have to be able to say, okay, and think about it. It's hard, but we're gonna keep being shitty if we don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean. It's, I mean, I, I understand. I mean, it, it is hard. It's hard to understand, right? Um, it, it's, mm. it's hard to understand. It's, it's something that, um, to talk about again, mo- m- doing research from a point of, of experience, right? From one's own subject's position. Um, it, it, it's difficult to see all sides and I'm not making excuses for, for anyone in terms of, in terms of a lack of intersectionality. Um, but I think it's, it's important to recognize, uh, and for other folks to recognize, right. And this, this goes back to the thing I always said, you could be woke when you're dead. Uh, when, <laughs> when, when, when folks like to say, when folks like to talk about how woke they are. Right. And, and I tell folks all the time, you're not woke. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm not woke. You're not woke because woke is not, a, not woke is not a, it's not an end point. It is an always ongoing thing. Right. Um, and, and so I said, the only time you're going to be woke is when you're dead, because that's when you, you can't, when you can't do the work anymore. And I think that's one of the important things to remember, especially when we're doing this kind of research is that we always have to be looking forward and looking at ways to make ourselves better. Uh, and I mean, and this is not just with doing this kind of research, but this is just with like being humans uh, who have any kind of eye towards social justice, right? Is that we always have to recognize that we can always do better. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, and it goes back to that understanding. I have these conversations all the time with hashtag good white women uh, who <laughs> who get upset, you know, with the with the notion of with the notion of call out culture. And they're like, "Well, what about call in?" And I'm like, "See, but this this is you speaking from your subject position." Uh, I was like, "When you talk about where I come from culturally, calling in is not a thing. Calling out is right. That's when you let people know they as my as my grandmother would say, let somebody know they slip is showing, right." Uh, <laughs> right. It's, it's when you let somebody know they slip is showing. It's when you know, so, so let somebody know that 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 you need to work on whatever it is you need to work on. And it's not. I'm not here to placate folks. <laughs> I'm not gonna say here. Let me make you feel better about yourself and say here's an ally cookie, right? Uh, mm-hmm. but I'm here to say, if we're going to work on this together, we need to work on this together. And here's where, here's where you fucked up. And I need you to show me where I fucked up. Right. So call in the same way that I call folk out. I need folk to call me out. Um, and, and we've, I've had those discussions with folks many, many times. And I think that those are also conversations that as, I mean, and you make a good point when you start talking about how, why you write in the way that you write. I mean, and it, it it kind of comes uh, back to uh, why um, Not Your Mama's Gamer was founded in the first place and why NYMG, the journal, exists in the way that it does, is we got to bring all these voices together, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just academics can't sit back and kick back and just talk about, you know, the games, yeah. you know, talk about the games industry, the games community without 
bringing those voices in to be a part of the conversation, right? Otherwise we find ourselves back in the same position that academics have been in forever, which is talking about folks rather than talking to folks um, and learning about folks rather than learning from folks and in, a, in an attempt to make something that is more inclusive, right? I mean, so, I mean, so, so when we start talking about gaming masculinity and toxic masculinity in games culture, um, it's, it's a difficult thing because folks like to get up in their fields and get defensive real quick. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know. It's, I don't know what the answer is. Um, but you know, I'm sure in my, in my 20 odd years, uh, I, I, as an academic, I have, or as an anti-academic, as I like to say, uh, as an academic or anti-academic, I have offended many. And I'm sure in the remaining years I have in, in academia, I will offend a whole lot more, but I'm okay with that. Yep. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and I think that the same thing that I, I say now and period, and we'll say over and over again, probably to Alicia, is the same thing I say to other folks who are, um, who are budding academics, early academics, or even late academics, don't take yourself out of the conversation because who you are adds a richness to, to your research and to your scholarship that only makes it better. Yeah. Can I add on to that? Um, yeah. Because the other thing that I think is really useful about, you know, foregrounding your kind of personal perspective in your writing is that it prevents you from doing that old school academic thing of making it seem like your account is the only possible account. So, you know, I, I don't want it to come across that, you know, what I wrote about gaming culture is like the be all end all definition of everyone's experience in gaming culture, because I want to invite other people to join that conversation. And mm -hmm. maybe, you know, maybe they disagree with me. Maybe they think gaming culture is an amazing utopia. Um, I would argue that they are wrong, but it's, I would rather... I would rather invite that kind of conversation than just kind of use my tone and my uh, writing style to insulate myself from any kind of discussion. But then again, I mean, mm -hmm. partly I think I can say that because I am in many ways in a privileged position. Like I have an academic job on the tenure track, so I'm not a graduate student or an adjunct who could potentially lose their job if they catch a bunch of heat on social media. You know, I am a white woman. I am, um, you know, financially stable enough that, you know, I'm not worried about, I don't know what, uh, whatever could possibly happen for getting boycotted or, or having my classes taken away or something like that. Like, yeah. There are, I'm thinking especially uh, since Alicia was talking about being an early career academic and, and kind of worrying about 
the persona that she's putting forth in her writing, like you are right to worry about that in some ways because hiring committees who read your writing samples might take into account like, well, if this person is uh, breathing too much fire, then are they going to be a good fit for the department? Are they going to be collegial or are they going to be a liability? Like, you know, that's when I, with the dissertation version of this book, uh, most of the feeling stuff is cut out um, Mm -hmm. just for that very reason. Like I wanted to get my certification from the institution and, you know, I was lucky that the press, uh, the University of Iowa Press worked with me and, and was okay with me, you know, existing my personality but but you know i it's dangerous for for some academics to do that because of the precarious position they're in in the market yeah i I, and you're you're exactly right right because we do come from a position of privilege when we start to when we start to establish those things to talk about you know how we uh you know how we operate in terms of doing, you know, kind of a feminist research and writing practices. Uh, yeah. But when I, I, I th- at the same time, I think about myself, right. As an academic, as a, as an academic, as a scholar, as even a graduate student, um, all of those things in terms of people wondering if, you know, if, if you're going to be collegial, if you are, you know, going to get along with others, if you are going to do all of these things, all of those are questions that get asked about you when you are a person of color, regardless of what you're studying, right. um, and what you're researching. Right. I mean, cause I know that those were questions that were asked about me, right. in you know, in the earth, like in 1999 and 2000, right? Way before I even started to do games research as an area of academic research, right? Not because, you know, not because I was doing games research or necessarily inserting myself into, uh, into my work because I was doing archival work at the time, right? I was doing history and archival work, but it was because I was a person of color, right? And, you know, yeah. is she going to be collegial? Is she going to fit in? Um, all of these questions that get asked that folks don't know that you know they're asking. <laughs> um, but you you do in one way or another. Uh, so, you know, I think that that's also a thing, right? Is that these mm-hmm. are questions, if, if you, again, if you if you are a person of a certain type <laughs> or you have a certain subject position that those are questions that are going to be asked about you no matter what. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that that's why for me, I think uh, it is, it is, and, and that's, I don't think, and I think that that is the opposite of privilege for me, right. To say that, 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 you know, me saying, I should do this. This is an obligation for me is an opposite of privilege. It's just, it's a, it's a history of oppression that makes me say, I'm going to be oppressed no matter what. Yeah. Um, that, that gives me that opportunity to say, so I am going to use my voice in the way that I need to, uh, in order to, to, to reach one, reach folks who are outside of the academy, but two, to make uh, the plight of oppressed people known uh, in a greater way. So would you say like for you, you don't perceive it 
as a risk because it's not a risk, it's a certainty. Like Right, exactly. That's, I mean, <laughs> it, it is not a risk, right? It, it's going to happen no matter what. Um, the, the, the viability of my research is going to be questioned regardless of whether or not I'm doing, you know, history and archival research or doing game studies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, whether or not, you know, my research and my writing is, uh, is, uh, stringent enough is going to be questioned no matter uh, whether or not I'm, whether, no matter whether I'm writing about state of decay or, uh, Gorgias, right? It doesn't matter. It's still going to be questioned. Um, it, it is a certainty. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, I'm just going to continue to sit over here and mm-hmm myself to death. <laughs> <laughs> Everything is awful. The remix. <laughs> I was going to say, ooh, that's a new tune for Everything is Awful. Remix. Oh, wow. We just really really know how to keep it happy here. I know, but you know, the the (laughs) saddest part of that whole thing, though, is that... Is that it's not actually a big deal, it's just how we live our lives? It's it's not a big deal, it's the way we live our lives, and it's not changing. No. I mean, because it's been 20 years since I was a graduate student almost. And graduate students of color are still running into that, are still running up against that every single day, right? Junior faculty members of color are still having to question what they do, when they do, and how they do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been 20 years. And 20 years before that, right, my academic predecessors had to deal with the same thing. So at, at what point, right, do things change? Well, you know, it's interesting because, so academia is also a space that considers itself utopian and a meritocracy. And right. ideas are the, the currency, not who you are or where you come from. But, you know, obviously, you know, we know from, you know, however many hundreds of years that the academy has been around that that's not actually how the system works so you know i'm one of those people so i'm one of those annoying game studies people who kind of likes to take the lens of gaming and put it over every system and kind of think about it as you know win conditions and lose conditions and strategies and you know what we've been talking about is this idea that you know people want to suggest that within academia you can learn how to be a better player and you can learn like the secret tricks and strategies to present yourself in a certain way so that you will be perceived as collegial and seem like you're supposed to be there but you know the the more people you talk to and the more experiences you gather you realize that you know, actually, no, the, there are people who just will not be able to win that game or who, you know, might as well ignore the game because they're not going to be treated in the same way as, as other players. Now, see, that's why I'm the worst because now this metaphor is, like, too tortured. But it, it just was interesting. Like, it got me thinking about 
how uh, you know we keep trying throughout history. Like games isn't the first time we've tried to invent like a special space where it won't matter where you come from, and it's only going to be the internal life of the mind that matters. It's like we keep trying to invent that space over and over and over, and we keep failing to mm. account for the ways that gender and race and sexuality make their way into those spaces and turn them into yet another example of you know what ways that your body and your uh your social categories do matter and do determine where you end up within the system mm-hmm Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like so now we've taken two things that Alicia enjoys. So gaming and school. <laughs> and we've made them both not fun anymore. I mean, I never expected anything different, really. <laughs> oh, okay. It's fine. <laughs> I'm just I'm just sitting here kinda staring at the screen going yep this is this is yeah. my life this is all of it but, but I, mean, I don't want to, to speak for you guys but like i you know i say all of that but i love my job and i love video games and you know like i said earlier i play league of legends that's like the worst <laughs> community in the world but you know so you know you can we can critique these things but you know that that's the world we live in and it's important to do those critiques but I also find a lot of joy and a lot of that joy comes from talking to other people who are in the academy and, and understand what the dissertation hell is like or to other people in gaming culture who you know you can kind of catch their eye sometimes across a room at a convention and, and exchange that look that says like did that person just say that like those moments make it worth it, I think. And I guess they have to because wh where are we going to go, right? There's no other world we can escape to. That's Absolutely. We, we say it all the time, right? We, we, we critique it and we spend so much time critiquing and working and researching in the area because we do have a love for it. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you can't put that kind of time an effort into something you don't have a love for. True. Alicia makes that joke all the time about hate playing stuff. But <laughs> <laughs> you know, but that there is that that old adage that you have to you have to love something in order to hate it. Right. I mean, because those are the two of the strongest emotions that you could ever think about. So you have to feel strongly about a thing in order yeah. to in order to have a strong reaction to it. It is true. And we don't. That's what I keep. Yeah, it's what I keep trying to tell everybody. Like, we don't do this because for any other reason other than that, we love it. Like, you don't put this much time, effort and misery into something unless you care about it. Mm -hmm. Is that going to be the title of your dissertation, Hate Play? That's be... <laughs> we have to work that in somehow. Ooh. That's hate my play. favorite thing. Like, I just read an article about hate watching, 
Mm-hmm. And it was about The Walking Dead, which I hate. I hate watching the watched. shit out of that show. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and it, and it's, it was so interesting. Because it was just about that same thing. Like, I am gleefully awaiting the next thing that I am going to scream at. Like, you know, that uh, I'm a fan of how much I hate that show. And like, what does that mean? <laughs> I don't know what it means, but. Someone needs to write that book too. <laughs> yeah, that's me and Game of Thrones right there. Oh, yeah, okay. also, also that. Yep. Because I don't Player watch. Oh. <laughs> Ready Player. Yes. We just we just did that. We just had a hate read of it. See, Alicia, I hate mm-hmm. read it. I hate teach it. Damn. There liar. you go. <laughs> Boy, let's not use that. Like, so don't, we, we can't uh, tweet about like, in this podcast, we talked about hate play and then hashtag Gamergate. Like, you know, that's, cause that's the term. Like, that's, that's what I think a lot of people think that we do. They think yes. that we dislike it, the games, and that we want to take away the games or fundamentally alter the games because we hate them. And it's like, no, you know, when we say we hate play them, it's it's that it really is that we love to hate them and hate to love them, and it's it's complicated. But, that would yeah. come and knocking on their door, like knock knock knock. I'm here to take your video games. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we can put do a, put them in the briefcase. That can be the title. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm pretty sure we've had that as a title before. <laughs> yeah, probably because so is. much of it is. Yep. So, oh, we've had a good conversation. We've been talking a long time. <laughs> I just realized that. But I got, a, I got, I have another question. Alicia, do you have more questions, darling? I'm, you know, we kind of got to everything I wanted to address, so I'm good. We've, I know we've had a great conversation. But uh, so, the big question, Megan, is what's next for you in terms of your research? Oh, um, so right now I am doing a little, like, so this is my fun, um, palette cleanser project. I'm, I'm writing about the video game Desert Bus. Have you guys ever heard of that? Mm-mm. Okay. So Desert Bus is an unreleased game that was created by Penn and Teller, the magicians, And it was designed as a prank. So you would tell your friend like, oh, I got this this game. And in the game, you have to drive a bus from, I think it's LA to uh, Las Vegas. Someone someone will correct me on that if if I'm wrong. Um, But it takes place in real time. So it takes hours and hours to drive this bus. And the, the joke is supposed to be that like your friend will quickly get bored and throw the controller down in frustration and you know, you'll be like, oh, you know, haha, it's not a real game. But people have started to play it and stream it, um, particularly when they're trying to raise money for charity, mm-hmm. kind of like a like a digital marathon. Instead of running a marathon to earn money for charity, you kind of play this horribly boring game. And I just think it's it's so interesting. First, just that idea of, you know, talking about hate playing, you know, so you you play that game because you know it's not going to be fun. And then you perform not having fun for an audience 
so that mm-hmm. they can have fun watching you not have fun. Mm. I think that's really interesting. <laughs> but then also, uh, like this idea of the subject position that the game puts you in. So you're this kind of, you know, working class person who has a job and has to obey like the speed limit and has to make sure that they don't crash and has to pick someone up. Uh, you like, you're, you're going there to pick someone up and then you have to drive them back to LA. And, you know, this idea that we're taking labor and we're turning it into a game. But usually when we do that, when we have like a restaurant management game, like a, what is that game called? Like Diner Dash or something, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, they make it fun, but this version just presents labor to you as it actually is. And, you know, like, so what kind of interesting, uh, what, what kind of interesting things can we, can we think about? with regards to, you know, we talk about gamification as a way that we can improve education or a way that we can improve training. And, you know, what if we were to honestly gamify things and kind of present the unfun of it and the TDM of it? Um, I don't I don't know what I'm gonna say about it yet, but I've been playing it and I've been watching some streams and it just seems like a really interesting corner of gaming culture like the the people who are fans of this game and who like try to set high scores by driving back and forth and back and forth and also (laughs) it's a corner of gaming culture where you know i I don't have to be sucked into the quicksand for a while Um, (laughs) yeah so so yeah it'll be fun I'm 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 anxious to see what you say about this game in the end because when you when um you were first asking folks about Desert Bus um like on social media I looked into it and I was like that's interesting because I have you know my one of my guilty pleasures in video games is games like Farming Simulator mm-hmm. uh, so I like games like Farming Simulator I like farming in games like Stardew Valley. I like mining in Minecraft. I like things that that are tedious, right? Um, yeah. And I'm like, and, and I find some relaxation in the tedium. But oddly enough, I was I looked at Desert Buzz and I was like, oh, sweet Jesus, that holds no appeal for me at all. Yeah. <laughs> Which, because I, when I first heard about that, I was like, I might like something like that. Um, but it, it's, it is interesting because, right, it, 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 does make the monotonous monotonous like in a way that other simulators that uh simulate some kind of monotonous uh task don't right like Mm -hmm. i can i can you know thresh wheat all day long in farming simulator 17 (laughs) and it's something about it right that you know is is almost meditative um, so, so yeah, desert bus is, is, is an interesting, is an interesting, uh, artifact to me. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's interesting. And I'm also curious. So the, the thing that's weird about it is it never actually did get released. So the, the pen and teller game, like the prank game mm-hmm. that it was supposed to be a part of never actually came out. So it's also this thing that 
uh, gamers kind of discovered and passed around yeah. as a mod. And now they've, if you go on Steam, if you're curious about this game, you, there's a virtual reality version of it, <laughs> which I haven't played, but that I think seems like, you know, I guess last last reference to Ready Player One, but like, you know, I, I, I can imagine you know, the promise of VR is it can transport you to these fantastic worlds and you can see these crazy sights and it's like, well, or the desert bus. VR <laughs> that, yeah, where you just sat and you drove, like, is that what the future of work is going to be instead of being a long road trucker where you're in a truck and you're moving across the country? Are you just going to drive it remotely like a drone in VR, like just sitting yeah. in your house and driving? Like, I, I just think that's interesting. Yeah, I... You know, there are so many games that I can't get into because they are just work to me. I, in many games, I don't enjoy, like, fetch quests. I don't want to help all of the people in the town learn to tie their shoes. I can't play <laughs> Animal Crossing. It takes something else. Like, it takes stakes for me to do it. Like, I will, like, speaking of State of Decay, I will run back and forth across town to take crackers to the man babies all day long. I'll complain about it, but I'll do it because people will die if I don't. And I personalize the characters in the game. That's important to me. But like in a happy cartoony world, I'm like, I don't give a shit about you. You're going to be fine if I don't fish. And so I can't thresh <laughs> wheat all day. I like Stardew Valley, but I can't put, you know, hundreds of hours into it. Um, because it feels like work after a while. So it's 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 interesting to think about where that line is with everybody, mm -hmm. and and what is play for you and what is entertainment. I look at something like this and I'm like, that's amazing. I would do that just for the fun of it. I will drive the bus back and forth. Sure, let's do it. Um, <laughs> why not? But that's it's like a it's, it's like a, I don't know an an, an anti game. Well, and so. May I propose, like, sh shall we have a desert bus stream sometime just to... <laughs> yes. Do it. I will be the it. bus driver. An you experiment. can throw paper at me. I'll bring, I'll bring snacks. All right. <laughs> so we can have a road trip. But, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting because, you know, it seems like work, but, and then people are using it as work like they're saying i'll do this thing if you give me money for my charity or or whatever it might be yeah so it's like they're recognizing it as yeah. work that's interesting there you go alicia i think it's great you can you can stream desert bus during our uh, next charity marathon yeah i'll just i'll just do that the whole time and i'll just have conversations with people <laughs> they'll be like what are you doing i'm like i'm driving a bus obviously <laughs> oh that's a really good point yeah so yeah like so the idea of streaming and interacting with the chat as a part of streaming like it yeah i guess that game is well made for streaming in the sense that it makes it easy to divide <laughs> your attention yeah that. don't look for me streaming state of decay because i'm busy living <laughs> yeah no you have, that, like, you have to stream state of decay we'll see we'll see <laughs> Desert bus is more my speed. <laughs> hey, was that a purposeful speed joke? Yes, like, oh, indeed. 
Boom. I was going to let it just sit there, but. Oh, man. I was going to let it, it roll right over my head. <laughs> I think this means that Bye, it's getting everybody. late. Good night. <laughs> Good night to your waitresses. When we've gotten to the puns, it's it's over. <laughs> All right. Um, one last question that's not a question, Megan, and then we'll we'll uh, wrap up. We won't keep you all night. Um, is there anything that we didn't ask you that you would have liked for us to have asked you? Hmm. That's always our stumper question at the end. Oh, man, that is hard. Um, I don't know. I don't think so. I... I just really appreciate, you know, it's so nice that you guys reached out and, and gave me a chance to talk. And, you know, I, I look forward to, to hopefully talking with you guys again sometime. I don't know. On the desert bus. Yeah. Oh, on the desert bus. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that will bring us to the end, I suppose. Uh, so until next time, uh, we would like to stay to y'all. Stay cool. Stay dry. Uh, thank, and let me say again. Hold on. Let me back up a second. Megan, thank you very much for joining <laughs> oh, us. Thank you. You've thank been you. you've been amazing. Um, everybody, go out and buy a copy of Gaming Masculinity, Trolls, Fake Geeks, and the Gendered Battle for Online Culture. Um, it's it's a it's a great book. It's a great read. Um, you'll really enjoy it. Enjoy it as in uh, hate it. Um, not, yeah, not the hate book. Read <laughs> hate, hate read it. <laughs> not hate the book, but hate hate what we're hate what we're fighting against. Right is what is what. <laughs> uh, it's it's a definitely a good book. Please grab a copy of it uh, and 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 read it. Um, but until next time, y'all, stay cool, stay dry, and as always, my friends, game on.